Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me in the back of your Psalters to Lord's Day 30? Question 80. What difference is there? Um, page 62, excuse me, page 62. Question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? Answer, the Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord, we have been carefully considering this section of the Heidelberg Catechism, considering different aspects of the Lord's Supper, the right understanding of it, as a sacrament which signifies and seals the blessings of Christ and strengthens the faith of the Lord's people. We have sought to fortify ourselves against threats, both old and new, to this blessed ordinance of the true church. But here we find at Lord's Day 30, there is one aspect of our catechism which we have not yet touched upon, and that is the most strong and vehement denouncing of the Roman Catholic Mass. In the different uh, editions of the Heidelberg Catechism, this did not come in until the end. In the third edition, Zacharias or Sinus labor throughout the catechism to be very warm, to be very positive in his catechism, that it would largely be about strengthening and comforting in true doctrine and not issuing strong denunciations against those who were erring. And yet in his third edition, he changed that and incorporated this warning. And historians argue, why was it? Well, some trace it to a visit that he had with a famous pastor by the name of John Calvin, one of his mentors and teachers. And some have argued that Calvin persuaded him to include this portion. Others have pointed out that the Council of Trent had just met. And this was the great council of the Roman Catholic Church, which denounced the Reformed churches as heretics and uh, as it fortified itself in its errors concerning the Mass, perhaps this was the reason why it was necessary 
to add this. In any case, Ursinus himself in his commentary writes this about its necessity. He says, this question is necessary on account of the errors and horrid abuses which the Mass has introduced into the Church. It is otherwise asked, why is the Mass to be abolished? This question, however, is contained in the above because the differences which exist between the Lord's Supper and the Popish, Popish Mass constitute the reasons why the Mass is to be abolished. For since the Mass has so many things connected with it, which are in direct opposition to the Lord's Supper, it must not be confounded with it, nor substituted in the place of it, nor tolerated in the Church by godly magistrates, but must be abolished. Those were his reasons. It shouldn't be confused with the Lord's Supper. It should be not brought in to the true church, and nor should it even be tolerated to exist at all. Godly magistrates and kings should ensure it has no place in their kingdom. So strong was that reformer Zacharias or Sinus on this point. So strong indeed that modern reformed churches, at least reformed in name, have sought to distance themselves from the original confession of the Reformed Church on this point. The Christian Reformed Church in 2008 in their Acts and Agenda of Synod wrote this, that the last paragraphs of question 80 be placed in brackets to indicate they do not accurately reflect the official teaching and practice of today's Roman Catholic Church and are no longer confessionally binding on members of the CRC, end quote. And so this church, which in many other areas has departed from the word of God, has also departed from the Reformed Confession on this point, saying that the confession is too harsh. It, it surely is not a fair representation of where the Roman Catholic Church is. But we stand firmly with our fathers on this point, together with the Heritage Reformed Churches and the United Reformed Churches, the Canadian Reformed Churches, the Netherlands Reformed Churches, and so forth, in confessing that this is accurate and fully representation of the abomination of the Popish Mass. For this, we will consider three things. First, we will seek to gain perspective, perspective. Second, we will give an, an assessment. And third, we will trace out some implications. So perspective, assessment, and implication, the abomination of the mass. Well, some may even question whether this is really necessary. After all, isn't it the case that it is usually a sign of a cultic and authoritarian kind of church that is always going around denouncing others? And surely we would not want to fall into that pattern. We agree with the Westminster Confession on uh, what it says in chapter 25. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. That 
is a distinction that we want to observe. Not everyone who differs from us in our doctrine or practice is a synagogue of Satan. We embrace all brothers and sisters in the Lord, no matter what communion they may be a part of. If indeed they hold to the essentials of the gospel and keep themselves free from uh, gross sin, we embrace them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And where we have differences, even strong and important differences, we contend with them in love and seek to bring them to the fuller knowledge of the truth. But we also recognize that there are lines that can be crossed. We recognize that there are such things that go to the very heart of the faith and go to the very core of godliness. But if they are transgressed, they cease to be true churches, but indeed wicked devices of Satan to destroy souls and to war against the glory of God. And our contention is that the Roman Catholic Church is such an organization. And so the objection comes, well, it's the largest religious organization in the world. Millions and millions of people. Perhaps the largest religious profession of our own city here in London, with 21% of Londoners professing to be Roman Catholic. And more than that, you, you see its prominence in culture, in society, in politics, in organizations like the Daily Wire, in other organizations that even claim to be Christian, that claim to stand for morality, that claim to stand for life, that claim to stand for marriage, and so forth. Is it really the case? Is it really the case we need to be so harsh? In dealing with them, after all, isn't it the case that religious people just should pull together, put their differences aside, and agree where they can agree? Well, we bear these things in mind, but we also come back to the truth of the scriptures. The truth of the scriptures. This is ultimately what we're going to. We're interested in what the Bible says. Then we read in 1 John chapter 2, a most interesting passage there in verse 18 of 1 John 2. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. There's a special warning here about something called Antichrist. Antichrist. Well, what would that be? Well, the prefix anti in the Greek is easy to remember. It's anti. Exactly the same. And anti in the Greek has a twofold meaning. It means opposed to, antithetical to, and it means replacing. Replacing. Substituting. The most dangerous error, which is reflected here, is that of Antichrist. Something which has the appearance of Christ, but is a facsimile. Can you imagine a more heinous monster than a creature that would pretend to be your spouse by adorning itself with, it, with an appearance of your spouse and inviting itself into your home and trying to draw in your affections all the while being a monster to devour you. This is Antichrist. 
was the warning of Jesus himself in Matthew 24 and verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And so you see here that there's a twofold expression of Antichrist. There is the one Antichrist, the, we could say, eschatological Antichrist, the fullest expression, a figure who will embody the fake Christ and seek to draw worship away from the true Christ, but also many, many Antichrists, many expressions of distorting Christianity in order to lead them astray. So we recognize we are not to just give something a pass because it claims to be Christian, even if it professes some things that are true, if they believe the doctrine of the Trinity, if they agree that Jesus was born of a virgin, if they agree he's the son of God, then all, um, all well, some may say, we say not enough. We have to examine whether these things be of the Lord. And so our perspective is shaped by the context. It's also shaped by the scriptures, but it also needs to be shaped by the actual teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is particularly what I want to set forth. Indeed, it, it can be a very unedifying thing sometimes to reflect upon error. But here, I think the occasion warrants that we will be turning to those official documents written by the Roman Catholic Church to help us understand this a bit better. What is the Mass? What is it that we're talking about? Well, one good resource that you can find online or in any uh, bookstore is the Roman Catholic Catechism, written in 1991 by Pope John Paul II, who claims to be the head of the Christian Church and claims to be infallible and certainly is recognized by all Catholics as the one who speaks for their group. Of course, John Paul II since replaced by other popes, and yet this is the most recent edition of their authoritative teaching, which is sent forth for all Roman Catholics to study, to memorize, and also to share with those who would be interested in joining the Roman Catholic Church so they can examine what it is they believe. And surely no, no one will disagree with this. We want people to examine what we believe by our confessions, to examine them by the scriptures. And so also uh, we will extend the same courtesy to the Roman Catholics. Now, a large section of the uh, Roman Catholic Catechism, which is a long, hefty tome about this, this thick, uh, concerns what it calls the Eucharist, which is their normal word for the Mass. And you'll notice that uh, if you read it, that it takes place in the context of six sacraments. Rather than seeing that there are two, the Lord's Supper and baptism, they not only change the meaning of baptism and the, um, and the Lord's Supper, but they also add to those confirmation, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders, essentially. Other rituals that they uh, commemorate, none of which are recognized as sacraments in the word of God, and indeed all of which have no foundation in the word of God as so understood by their system. But they speak of the mass in a most glowing way as, as really the most central part of their religion. 
Notice this quotation, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, indeed, all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate are bound up with the sacrament and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pasch. So... Something of great importance is set forth here. They speak of it as an efficacious sign and sublime cause. Note that cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people of God by which the church is kept in being. You're likely to get confused at different points if you try to read it because ultimately there's a very different view about how salvation works. Keep in mind, their whole view of of justification is not an imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, but rather it is confused with sanctification. Justification, their view, is infused into the heart. And so it can be just as easily lost. And so the Roman Catholic is continually trying to receive enough grace and enough righteousness to be brought to heaven. But we read on. A holy sacrifice, they call it the holy sacrifice, because it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior and includes the church's offering. And they say it is called Holy Mass or Missa because the liturgy in which the mystery of the Mass accomplished uh, concludes with the sending forth or missio of the faithful so that they may fulfill God's will in their daily lives. There's dispute about whether that's the origin of it, but for the moment we'll accept that definition according to their own uh, system at any rate. And so then there is this explanation about how it takes place. And they, they explain that with the Eucharistic prayer, the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving and consecration, we come to the heart and summit of the celebration. And so you come into the Roman Catholic Church, and what do you find? Well, there, the center of the church is not a pulpit, but an altar. An altar, as though brought up from the old covenant. There, an altar to receive a sacrifice. And there is brought from another part of the sanctuary, from a little, uh, a little thing called a tabernacle, or a little, uh, a little building, is brought the wafer of the mass. And then as the priest, he brings the wafer onto the altar. There is the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer, quote, the prayer of thanksgiving and consecration would come to the heart and summit of the celebration. In the preface, the church gives thanks to the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit for all his works, creation, redemption, and sanctification. The whole community thus joins. Next, in the Episcopalus, the church asks the Father to send his Holy Spirit or the power of blessing on the bread and wine on the bread and wine, so that by his power they may become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and so that those who take part in the Eucharist may be one body and one spirit. 
in the institutional narrative, the power of the words and the action of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit make sacramentally into the species of bread and wine, Christ's body and blood, his sacrifice offering on the cross once for all. In the Anna Menace, that follows the church calls to mind the passion, resurrection, and glorious return of Jesus Christ. In the intercession, the church ind indicates that the Eucharist is celebrated in the communion with the whole church, in heaven on earth, the living and the dead, and in communion with the pastors of the church, the Pope, the Dionysian bishop, and his presbyterium, and his deacons, and all the bishops in the whole world with their churches. In the communion preceded by the Lord's prayer, and in the breaking of the bread, the faithful receive the bread of heaven, the body and blood of Christ, who offered himself for the life of the world, end quote. Now, if you were to imagine such a thing, it would be a spectacle. It would be something that would grab attention. It would be something that would generate interest from any who would see it. Let me read something from a man named Scott Hahn. He actually used to be a uh, a Protestant theologian. He went to the same seminary my father went to, Gordon Conwell. And then he converted to Roman Catholicism, writing with his wife a book called Rome, Sweet Rome, Our Journey to Catholicism. And listen to how it was that because they wandered in to see this ritual, they were drawn to it and saw that they had to participate. Quote, one evening, we had the opportunity to be at Mass, where there was a Eucharistic procession at the end. I had never seen this before, as I watched row after row of grown men and women kneel and bow when the, mon the monstrance passed by. I thought, these people believe that this is the Lord and not just bread and wine. If this is Jesus, that is the only appropriate response. If one should kneel before a king today, how much more before the king of kings, the lord of lords? Is it safe to kneel or not? But I continued to ruminate. What if it's not? Well, gradually, she became drawn and drawn to it. And so she, both she and her husband became Roman Catholics. Well, that would be a description of it. But what does it mean? Well, you read the Roman Catholic Catechism. And what, is, what do they mean by it? What is the significance of it? They say this, quote, By the consecration of the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in true, real, and substantial manner. His body and his blood, his soul, his divinity. Everything that Christ is, is there in a little wafer of bread, a God of bread, which they may bow down to and worship. A quote from the Council of Trent, that council which denounced the Reformed churches originally. The catechism written in the 90s cites it as continually authoritative, that council. There they quote, the Eucharist is thus a sacrifice, a sacrifice, because it represents or makes present the sacrifice of the cross, because it is in its memorial, and because it applies its fruit. And here they quote the Council of Trent, Christ our Lord and God was once and for all 
to offer himself to God the Father by his death on the cross, on the altar of the cross, to accomplish there an everlasting redemption. But because his priesthood was not to end with his death at the Last Supper on the night in which he was betrayed, he wanted to leave to his beloved spouse, the church, a visible sacrifice as the nature of man demands, by which the bloody sacrifice which he was to accomplish was once for all on the cross would be represented in memory perpetuated until the end of the world. And so I will quote again from that council. There we read the, these words. That the sacrifice of the mass is propitiatory both for the living and the dead. Oh, you thought this would only help the living? No, even the dead who have passed into the next world can be saved through this sacrifice, so they say. For as much as in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ is contained and immolated in an unbloody manner who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross, the Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. That means it takes away sin. The bread, the sacrifice of the bread takes away sin. And that by means thereof, this is effected, that we obtain mercy and find grace in seasonable aid if we draw nigh unto God, contrite and penitent, with a sincere heart and upright faith, with fear and reverence. And so they will denounce in the most strong way those who deny this. In their canons of this council, they say, If anyone saith that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, or that it to be offered is nothing else but that Christ be given to us to eat, let him be anathema. If anyone saith that by those words do this for the commemoration of me in Luke 22, Christ did not institute the apostles to be priests or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood. Let him be anathema. If anyone saith that the sacrifice of the mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice commemorated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice or that it profits him only at who receives... Interesting. They deny that it's only those who receive in faith. They don't accept that. Or that it profits only them who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities. Let him be anathema. Anathema, you understand, means curse. They curse all those who would object to such things. Well, these are bold and... Strong claims, what are we to make of them? So far, we've gained some perspective. What is our assessment? What is our assessment of these things? Well, the first thing we would say by way of assessment is that the Popish Mass is an abuse of the Word of God. An abuse. It is always a terrible thing to abuse the Word of God. It's what Satan did in the beginning. And so it is that all the children of Satan will abuse the word of God. And we ought not be surprised where the servants of the devil will abuse God's word. What is it they will say? Well, they'll say, think about John 6, verse 35. Jesus says right there, 
I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Well, there you go. He calls himself the bread of life. Therefore, Jesus can turn himself into a loaf of bread to be worshipped. Here is the argument. Well, we may say in response in John 10, verse 9, he also says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Are we to say, therefore, that Jesus physically transforms into a door? Obviously, that is absurd. They don't confess that. But here they find themselves abusing the word of God in order to support their heinous error. Or perhaps they would point to the words that Jesus spoke at the time of his Lord's Supper, where he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This blood is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He calls the bread his body, calls the wine his blood. And so we then just have to ask, we have to ask, is this truly what the original apostles would have, would have thought? There is Jesus standing before them in the flesh, and that what he is saying is that you are to understand this before you as literally my body, as though there was a transformation materially, that they were eating with their teeth the actual flesh and blood of Christ. Here we see that these things are not only irrational and obviously contrary to basic common sense, but also contrary to the analogy of faith in the scriptures. It's contrary to what a sacrament is. It is a sign and seal of the grace of Christ. It is not Christ himself as uh, his person. It is a sign whereby Christ communicates himself to those who receive it in faith. And so you think, for example, of uh, the sacrament of the circumcision in Genesis 17. There God says this is the sign of the covenant. But then later on in verse 13 of Genesis 17, he says, it is my covenant that shall be in your flesh. So he calls, sac- he calls the sacrament of circumcision his covenant, as though it were not just a sign, but his covenant itself. This is normal sacramental language. It is why baptism is so often referred to according to what it signifies as our burial into Christ's death, as our resurrection with him. It's, it's the language of the sacraments. And yet they abuse it. It's an abuse of the word of God. It has no warrant nor foundation. Although it may be propounded by popes and priests to those who are ignorant of the scriptures, it is not any foundation in what God has spoken. The second thing we would say by way of assessment is that the mass is a high act of idolatry. Jesus said in Matthew 4 verse 10, Unto the devil get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What is the uh, sin that the Old Testament Israel fell into time and time again? It was falling into idolatry. There is Moses, he's left the children of Israel just for a little while, and all of a sudden they're demanding that Moses make for them something visible that they can relate to. 
And he brings them the golden calf and they say, this is the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Putting a calf in the place of the true Jehovah. And so it is putting bread in the place of the true Christ. Indeed, there's something deep in the human heart that yearns for idolatry, that yearns for something visible, something that they can put in their mouths or their pockets or their hands, something that they can, they can see as tangible. And whatever may be in the sinful human heart that yearns for idolatry, we nevertheless say with the true believers of all times and ages, that it remains a heinous and a wicked sin against God. Third, we would say this. It is, as our catechism says, a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Christ. It is not just an error and not just a grave sin, but it is indeed a denial of the gospel itself, the the gospel of Christ satisfying death. Now, the, the text that is referred to in these discussions is that which we read from Hebrews chapter 10. And I'll read a little bit of that with you in Hebrews 10. In particular, I'll read beginning at verse 11. And uh, in Hebrews 10, verse 11 and following, you notice that the context is why it was that the coming of Christ did away with the priests of the Old Covenant. And he speaks about this in verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand, on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now we read the book of Hebrews. It's very clear. This isn't just a, a phrase that's thrown out there, but it's, a, it's the linchpin of his whole argument. His whole argument is that now that Christ has come, all the bloody sacrifices of the old covenant must be done away with. It was all pointing unto a finished and completed work. And so their continuance is a blasphemy against Christ. And, and you see how seriously he takes it in other parts of this book. But here we come to the evasion of the papists. You'll notice that in what I'd re read, they continually refer to the fact that the, the Mass isn't a different sacrifice. Yes, it's a sacrifice. But it's just the same sacrifice that was offered back then. Yes, it's offered daily, like the old covenant sacrifices, which the apostle condemns. But really, it's not really different than the one offering, once for all offered. And so these sorts of language that often come up in these discussions, it's thrown out there, and this has led many Reformed people to say, well, maybe we're just misunderstanding how serious this all is. Listen to Kevin DeYoung writer with the Gospel Coalition who defends partially the decision of the CRC to remove this portion of the catechism. Quote, the sacrifice of Christ and the Eucharist are one sac sacrifice performed in different ways, they would argue. 
So the wording of the catechism does not in its entirety reflect the way Catholic theology would explain the Mass. The CRC is right about that. Official Catholic teaching does not argue that Christ's death must be repeated over and over. Rather, it teaches that in the Eucharist, the death of Christ is pulled into the present for us to enjoy sacramentally, end quote. Now, Kevin DeYoung will go on to make some um, uh, defense of the catechism in a different way, but already he's conceded too much. What is the basic concession here? Basically, that uh, provided that the Roman Catholics say that they're not, say that they're not denying the one sacrifice of Christ, we should take their word for it. They say again and again, we're not trying to do that. Well, let me tell you, it is not enough that you say you're not doing it. What matters is it actually being done? Are you actually, in fact, denying the one sacrifice of Christ and his death on the cross as the atonement for sin? And I think that is clearly so. For an example, consider how the Antichrist is described in 1 John chapter 2. Listen in verse 22 of 1 John chapter 2. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, if you would just think for a moment, is it really the case that the Antichrist walks around saying, I deny the Father and I deny the Son? That's obviously not what is in view here. The denial is not so much by way of explicit teaching, but the implicit, the subtle, the undermining of the truth, whereby by subtlety the Christians may be deceived, as indeed he speaks of being seduced. That's the nature of Antichrist. So it's not enough that the Roman Catholics say it's not what we're trying to do. Not enough. Listen to what John Calvin says. John Calvin interprets for uh, Hebrews 10 as a very clear refutation of the Roman Catholic Mass. Listen, it's a bit of a longer quote, but Calvin uh, gets to the heart of it here. Quote, now since we have come to the close of the discussion respecting the priesthood of Christ, now he's talking about the discussion in the whole epistle leading up to that point, readers must be uh, briefly reminded that the sacrifices of the law are not more effectually proved here to have been abolished than the sacrifice of the mass practiced by the pope is proved to be a vain fiction. He's saying the argument that works with one also refutes the other. They maintain that their mass is a sacrifice for expiating the sins of the living and the dead. But the apostle denies that there is now any place for a sacrifice. E even since the time in which the prophecy of Jeremiah has been fulfilled. The denunciation of, first P of Hebrews 10 is against all sacrifice now that this has been completed. Quote, they try to make an invasion by saying it is not a new sacrifice or different from that of Christ, but the same, on the contrary. On the contrary, says Calvin, the apostle contends that the same sacrifice ought not to be repeated and declares that Christ's sacrifice is only one, and that it was offered for all. And further, he often claims for Christ alone the honor of being a priest, so that no one was able to fit to offer him, so that no one was fit to offer him but himself alone. 
the papists have another evasion, and call their sacrifices bloodless. But the apostle affirms it as a truth without exception. The death is, ne death is necessary in order to make a sacrifice. You remember the previous chapter, he says that without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. That's what he's referring to. Quote, the, the papists attempt to evade again by saying that the mass is the application of the one sacrifice which Christ has made. But the apostle teaches us, on the contrary, that the sacrifices of the law were abolished by Christ's death for this reason, because in them a remembrance of sin was made. It hence appears evident that this kind of application, which had been devised, has ceased. In short, let the papists twist themselves into any form they please. They can never escape from the plain arguments of the apostle, by which it appears clear that their mass abounds in impieties. I'll mention this last thing as a way of assessment. We've seen that it is abuse of the word of God, that it is... Um, as well as that, a high act of idolatry. We've seen it's a denial of the sufferings of Christ. But I would add this as well. It is a covenant with the Pope of Rome. It's a covenant with the Pope of Rome. You notice something I'd read there uh, from the Catechism. In the intercessions, the Church indicates, this is the Roman Catholic Catechism now, that the Eucharist is celebrated in communion with the whole Church, that is the Roman Catholic Church, in heaven and on earth, the living and the dead, and in communion with the pastors of the church, the Pope, etc. So, just as the true church unites itself with Christ by way of our covenant, so also there is an acknowledgement anyone celebrates the Mass that the Pope is the true head of the church and that he is to receive this honor in the place of Christ. Well, here we've seen that there is our assessment. There is exactly as our catechism says, an abomination, an utter abomination. In the place of the purity of the gospel, there is this set in its place. That which corrupts and destroys souls. Have you ever found it? You're trying to witness someone who's come deeply under the influence of Roman Catholic teaching. And they have absorbed this lesson, if nothing else, that true repentance and true faith is not necessary because they go to Mass or because at any rate... The Mass is there. John Fox, the uh, great um, theologian of the Anglican Church who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, he described this, uh, how this tended to corrupt the whole religious life. Upon the Mass rises false hope. A false remedy is promised to wicked livers. For evil men, hearing mass in the morning upon hope thereof, take more security in doing all day what they list, what they wish. And such as have imbibing, brawling, taverning, swearing, whoring, dicing, carting, committed wickedness. To, their, to them the mass is set up, promising him sufficient propitiation, sacrifice, remedy of blood and soul for man and beast, Though they never heard preaching, never used praying, never repented, 
or how wicked soever they have been. Yet if they come to the church, take holy bread and holy water, and hear Mass, or find a sole priest upon the remedy thereof, they, then they think themselves discharged in a good Catholic men. What are the implications we take from this? The implications. Let me speak of just a few. First, evangelism. Evangelism. Can you believe there are actually people, upon hearing such things, understanding the severity of this error, would actually believe we ought not to evangelize Roman Catholics as though we were to regard them as true Christians? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither are fornicators nor idolaters shall inherit the kingdom of God. Idolaters shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, verse 8, the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Except there be repentance from this wicked idolatry of the Mass and all the other idolatries that go along with it, there can be no salvation. Are we saying, therefore, that none can be saved within the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely not. People can be saved in a Muslim mosque. They can be saved in a Hindu temple if they hear the true gospel. But where that prevails upon them, they will repent of their wickedness. They will confess the true God and until that happens, we can have no assurance of their salvation. And so they must be evangelized as those who are heretics separated from the grace of Christ. Second, we have separation. Separation. I can list all kinds of examples of how separation is a necessity. But let me just simply speak of marriage here. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it well. It is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, that is, unbelievers, papists, that is, Roman Catholics, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying such as are notoriously wicked in their lives or maintain damnable heresies, end quote. A very practical thing. The reality is that until, until someone is a Christian, we have no right to enter into a romantic relationship with them. We understand this, don't we? If someone enters into a romantic relationship with someone who is not a confessing Christian, they are putting that person above the will of God. And so it is not to be done. But consider the broader application there, that we are not to be unequally yoked. I remember speaking to one uh, church where I was preaching at, and they explained that they were having a joint prayer meeting with the local Roman Catholic Church about ending euthanasia. Well, what do we make of that? Well, we would say, well, it's, it's good that we pray for the end of euthanasia. But the moment, the moment where we would give ourselves to a joint spiritual exercise, a joint act of worship with those who are not Christians, let alone allow it to be led 
by idolaters and heretics. At that point, we would have to say that there is an unequal yoking taking place. Ought not to be done. We can multiply the examples, couldn't we? Isn't it the case that really throughout the 20th century, there's been a weakening and a softening of our stand against Rome? It's like we think we have other things to do, and so we can't just be resisting this idolatry. It's as though we're like the Old Testament Israelites, just asking, is idolatry really so bad? Yes, that person is an idolater. They're a Roman Catholic, but they have such a good stand on on, uh, abortion and so forth. Surely we can just support them, support their agenda, support their philosophy, support their ideology. Listen to what the Belgian Confession says. For this, in Article 36, for this purpose, God has invested the magistracy, the government, with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of them that do well, and that their office is not that they have regard unto and watch only for the civil state, but also that they protect the sacred ministry and thus may remove and prevent all idolatry and false worship, and that the kingdom of Antichrist may thus be destroyed and the kingdom of Christ promoted. Yes, we have an urgent desire to end all abortion in in Canada and in North America and so forth. But do we understand that the idolatry which takes place in every so-called Roman Catholic church is a greater offense to the Lord than is the uh, things that take place in abortion clinics? Where is our priorities? Is there that clear, unyielding stand against ungodliness? Is there indeed a willingness never to put ourselves in a situation where we would hold back the full truth of the word of God, that we stand against Antichrist and against all the facsimiles of Christ that would lead us away from the true message of salvation and into the grip of a false idol? Let me close with what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now, already, it is in the world. Amen.